Uh, we have been in a series in our church right now called Why Jesus Hates Religion, and we've been systematically deconstructing religion just with a vengeance. We are just so anti-religion in our church, as Jesus was very, very anti-religion. And we had two working definitions in your notes uh, today, just from the series, and I'm going to be giving you one of the messages out of the series we're in and give you a little kind of recap of this series. But religion... The definition of religion is man's way to get to God. Religion is man's way to get to God. And all world religion basically teaches the same thing. Especially if you look at the predominant world religions like Islam and Hinduism and Judaism and even, you know, sects of Christianity that I don't really call Christianity. I think it's called Christian religion. But it basically all teaches the same thing. You live by a code. You live by commands. You live by ethics. You live by, you know, a certain philosophy and you climb a ladder to God. And at the end of your life, if you climb high enough, God will accept you. And that's world religion. That's the definition of religion. Man's way to try to get to God. Jesus was God's way to get to man. And that's why Christianity is so radically different than religion. Yes. Jesus in Matthew 11 said, Christianity is not just different in teaching to other world religions, but it's different in form. Jesus called Christianity a gospel. He said, listen, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a gospel. And we really don't grasp the full meaning of that because we don't understand the historic definition of the word gospel. You know, if you study history and you really figure out what does gospel mean, it had a historical definition. It's the Greek word evangelizo, and Jesus intentionally used that word to talk about Christianity, telling us that, listen, Christianity is radically, radically different than religion. The word gospel basically means a historic event that brings a wonderful new order that people uh, rejoice at. For example, when Augustus Octavius became the new Caesar of Rome, they sent out a news bulletin to the world that said, here begins the gospel of Caesar Augustus. So when Jesus used the word gospel, he's saying, listen, this is not a religion. It is a gospel. This is you know, religion is something you do. Religion is ethics. Religion is commands. Religion is a philosophy. A gospel is something that has been done, that we receive joyfully. And that's the difference between Christianity and religion. Religion is something you do. Christianity is something that you receive. That's why the Romans called Christians atheists for the first 200 years. Christianity was actually called an anti-religion because the claims we made about God was so unbelievable. It was so far-fetched. Nobody in their right mind would ever make the claims that we made about God. It did not fit the category of religion. And so we as Christians for 200 years were called atheists by the Romans because of the things we said about God. That a loving God would come to earth to save us. We didn't have to earn our way to Him or work our way to Him or build a ladder to Him. But He came and did what we could not do. That's the power of a gospel. Yeah. And so the question I posed our church over the last few weeks is, do you have a gospel or do you have a religion? Are you living out a gospel or are you living out a religion? Are you trying to earn God's approval? Are you trying to please God through moral behavior and moral performance and how well you live? Or are you simply receiving the goodness? news of Jesus Christ into your life in a powerful way. And the person that illustrates this most in the Bible is the disciple John. And today I want to give you the secret of John. That's the title of my message is the secret 
of John because John had a secret the other disciples didn't discover till much, much later. And as a result of John understanding this secret, John's life was radically, radically different than the other disciples. John, John had benefits the other disciples did not have because he understood a very, very simple secret. John was a very special disciple. Many, many historians and theologians actually believe John was a, a nephew or cousin of Jesus, that Salome, John's mother, was related to Jesus' father, Joseph, and that uh, uh, they were actually grew up together. And that's why in the first miracle of Jesus at the wedding, many historians believe that was actually John the disciple's wedding. And the reason Jesus' mother was so interested in the water turning to wine because Jesus' mother, who was sisters with John's mother, uh, was helping with the catering that day and said, listen, we're out of wine. We need you to do something quick. And so many, many historians believe that. There's, there's, there's a, you know, a lot of theologians have that theory. I personally think that's probably what happened. I can definitely see Jesus and John being related. You see a lot of uh, similarities. You see a lot of uh, uh, relationship things that John had that the other disciples didn't have. But it really comes down to a revelation that John had. And he didn't have it immediately. John was really the disciple of love. We talk about him being the disciple of love, but he didn't start that way. Remember Jesus said, you guys are the sons of thunder, Zebedee's kids, the sons of thunder. He wasn't saying that in a positive way. Jesus was saying, you guys are basically hot-tempered. Uh, in Luke chapter 9, John was the one that said, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven like Elijah and kill them all? I mean, that wasn't the disciple of love. But later in life, John became the disciple and because of John, we have aspects of Jesus' life that no one else ever shared. You know, you study Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the Synoptic Gospels, basically meaning they're similar. They basically start out with the beginning of Jesus' life to his baptism, and then they skip two years of his ministry and go right into the third year of his ministry. If it wasn't for John, we would know nothing about the two years of ministry in between, but those two years give us some of the most incredible miracles, some of the most incredible teaching. John was the one that, that shared that, that Jesus gave us the new command to love one another. Now, there's a story that historians tell about John in his later years. They estimate probably 60 years after Jesus died, when John was in his 90s, he was in the temple, and people were asking, what was it like? What was the most important thing Jesus taught, or what, what do you remember most about being around Jesus, and John came up to the front, and he said three words, love one another. And they said, that's wonderful, but tell us, you know, what, what, what can you say about Jesus? What do you, and he got back up, and he said, love one another. And that's all he would say is those three words, love one another. They said, why are you only telling us love one another? He said, because Jesus gave us that new command, and that's how we're to live our lives. So John really gave us some beautiful insights into the life of Christ that we don't have in any of the other Gospels. John's the one that talks about the seven I am's throughout the Bible. John's the one that first set up Jesus as being the Lamb of God. 31 times in the New Testament, the Bible refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God. 29 of those times were at John's pen. So John gives us some really incredible insight. But what I want to do today is contrast the life of John with the life of Peter. Let's look at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, as we begin to look into the secret that John had, John says, we know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in His love. Let, let me explain something to you. It's not enough to know how much God loves you. You have to trust in that love. Amen. 
Today's message will be the easiest message in the world to logically understand with your mind, but the most difficult message in Christianity to believe in your heart. There are more Christians today suffering because they don't have this message in their heart. They have it in their mind, but they don't have it in their heart. They know this message, but they don't trust in this message. Trust comes out of your heart. You can know something intellectually, but unless you believe it in your heart, it's not going to change your life. And everybody I know knows this message intellectually. But so very few believers really have the secret of John deep, deep in their heart. So it's not enough to know how much God loves you. You have to trust in that love. Verse 19, we love each other because he first loved us. We love each other because he first loved us. Now, these two words, each other, in the Greek, aren't there. The Bible simply says, we love, period. We love, period. We love God. We love our wives. We love our husbands. We love our children. We love our friends. Why? Because God first loved us. If God doesn't love you, if God does not put his love inside of you, you don't have the capacity to love others. You'll never truly love your spouse or your children without first receiving God's love into your heart because it, your love is weak. Your love is human. Your love will fail. Your love is imperfect. But when you receive God's love inside, you have something so rich and incredible to give out. Let's contrast Peter and John, two approaches to, to Jesus through the life of Peter and the life of John. Many people believe or assume that Peter was the closest disciple to Jesus, that, that Peter was one of the three in the inner circle. Uh, Peter was with Jesus at Transfiguration. Peter was with him in the garden. Peter was the closest disciple. Peter was Jesus' best friend. Many people believe that. But let me show you a story many people have not seen before. In John chapter 13, they're in the upper room. They're having the Lord's Supper together. It's, it's the Passover celebration. They're having this time of Jesus instituting communion. And Jesus begins to say, one of you will betray me. One of you are going to betray me. And Peter's curious. He wants to know who it is. Now, if you were Peter and you were curious and you wanted to know something with Jesus and you were in the inner circle... Wouldn't you just ask him, who are you talking about, Jesus? But what does Peter do? In John chapter 13, verse 23, the Bible says that the disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, who's he talking about? Look at that. Who's he talking about? Peter didn't even feel close enough to ask Jesus. Peter leans over to John and says, John, can you ask Jesus who he's talking about? I thought Peter was the best friend. See, Peter realized John had a closeness to Jesus that he didn't even have. Look at this. In, in, in the, the first point in your note, Peter's identity. I want to give you, I want to contrast Peter and John. Peter's entire life, his identity, his self-security, his self-esteem, his relationship with God was all built on one simple statement. I love Jesus. That was Peter's life. 
Peter was the one that said, Jesus, I love you. I'll die for you. I'll fight for you. I'll go to the end for you, Jesus. Whatever you want me to do, Jesus, I'll do it. I'll ne- if everyone else betrays you, I'll never betray you, Jesus. I'm fighting for you, Jesus. I'm here for you, Jesus. I'm, I'm going to do this thing, Jesus. That was Peter's life. Peter built his faith. Peter built his identity. Peter built his relationship with Jesus on three simple words. I love Jesus. And as a result, Peter was weak. Peter was insecure. Peter failed. Peter had issues. Peter could not succeed. And he loved Jesus passionately. But the problem was it began with I. It began with him. Peter loved Jesus. Peter, I'll never betray you, Jesus. I'll fight for you. I'll die. I love you Jesus see when I was young in ministry I, I used to preach that to so many people when people would be struggling with sin I'd say you're struggling with sin because you don't love Jesus enough if you love Jesus more you wouldn't be struggling with that thing if you love Jesus more you'd be living better if you love and the more I preach that the more in bondage I put people the more people struggle with sin, the more people, my, me personally, I had issues and addictions in my life for years. Why? Because I love Jesus. I wanted to beat those things. I wanted to fight those things. I wanted to, I wanted to charge. Those, I can beat this, Jesus. I love you. Look at how much I love you, Jesus. And the more I live my life, by I love Jesus. The weaker I got, the more insecure I became. The more broken I became, the more addicted to sin I became, and my whole life was built on I love Jesus. That's religion. Think about it. what is religion? Building a ladder to God. I love you, God. Look at how hard I'm working for you, God. Look at how much I love you, God. Look at how much I'm doing. I love you. I'm obeying. I'm better. I'm doing, I'm doing all of this for you. Now, I want to contrast that with the life of John. John lived his life by three simple words, but they were radically different than the words Jesus lived his life by. John lived by the words, Jesus loves me. See, this is the difference between gospel and religion. Religion is I love Jesus. Gospel is Jesus loves me. Don't brag about how much you love Jesus. Boast about how much he loves you. The reality is good things happen who know Jesus loves them. Good things happen when you know you are loved by God. And let me explain this. Five times in the New Testament, we just read one of them. Five times in the New Testament, the Bible says the disciple Jesus loved. And it's always talking about John. Now, when I first read that, I, I misunderstood. And I thought that that meant John was the favorite. Jesus loved him more than all the other disciples. John was his favorite. He was the disciple Jesus loved. He was special. Uh, Jesus loved him more until I realized who wrote it. Do you realize you only find that in the book of John? None of the other disciples wrote that about him. He actually wrote it about himself. Imagine me going you know, to dinner tonight and then after dinner I get back to the hotel and I'm writing in my journal. Tonight I had a wonderful dinner with an incredible man of God, Pastor Ken Hubbard and the pastor that Jesus loved, Aaron Jane. <laughs> Imagine me writing that in my journal. That's what John was doing. He was writing 
In the gospel, I am the disciple that Jesus, it's like Moses in the Old Testament. You know in the Old Testament it said Moses was the most humble man to ever live. Do you know who wrote that? <laughs> Moses did. <laughs> but somehow he was led by the Holy Spirit because it made it to the final cut. <laughs> now let me explain something. John is not saying that he's the favorite. John is not saying that Jesus loves him more than the others. John is simply recognizing the fact Jesus loves me. See, Peter built his life on I love Jesus. John built his life on Jesus loves me. John had a secret. John had benefits that none of the other disciples had. Do you realize John is the only one that did not die a martyr? They tried to kill him, but they couldn't do it. One historian cites that they threw John in boiling oil and his skin was not burned. Nero got so freaked out that he isolated him to the island of Patmos because they did not know what to do. Because every time they tried to kill him, it didn't work. Do you realize John was the only disciple at the foot of the cross when Jesus died? Everyone else fled. Everyone else was afraid. Everyone else was a coward. John was at the foot of the cross when Jesus died. John got the greatest honor anyone had ever gotten to take care of the mother of Jesus. Jesus said, take care of my mom, John. Why? Because he was there. Why was he there? Because his relationship with Jesus wasn't built on how much he loved Jesus. His relationship was built with how much Jesus loved him. That was the secret of John. That's why I said, this is the easiest message in the world to understand logically with our mind. We all sing the children's song, which probably has the greatest theology the church could ever really receive. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But how many of us truly believe that in our heart? How many of us really feel like God loves us? How many of us are constantly insecure around God? Does God love me today? Am I good enough today? Uh, how am I? I doing today? God's not going to answer my prayer. I blew it last week. Let, let me explain something. Let me explain something about the gospel. If you are a born again Christian, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. People have this warped idea that God is this cosmic bully, this cosmic cop in the sky waiting to catch you doing something wrong, waiting to strike you down, waiting to bring the fire and the judgment. How can God judge you if he completely judged his son Jesus on the cross? Jesus was completely judged on your behalf so that you could be declared not guilty by God. Even when you sin, you are not guilty. Period. There is no judgment coming. Jesus was already judged completely in your place. Let me explain it like this. God treated Jesus the way you deserve to be treated. So that God could treat you the way Jesus deserves to be treated. That's the power of the gospel. So I tell our church constantly, God is so holy, he cannot overlook your sin. But he's so loving, he could not punish you for it. Your sin had to be paid for, but he punished Jesus to pay for it. So that you could be declared not guilty.
guilty. So why would a God who punished his son be looking to catch you? There's no condemnation coming. Remember the story of the adulterous woman? They bring her before Jesus, caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus said, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. Remember, Jesus is the one that said, if you want to know what my father looks like, look at me. Because I do what my father does. So all of these people with this warped idea about this mean God waiting to catch them doing something wrong. How does this compute? Jesus looks at this girl says, where are your accusers? Where are they that condemn you? She said, no one condemns me, my Lord. And what does Jesus say? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Our favorite verse in the Bible is John 3.16. Probably the most famous verse. Do you know what the very next verse is? John 3.17. I did not send my son to condemn the world, but to save the world. Do you understand? You are not condemned. You are not judged. You can walk into the presence of God and act like you belong there. Why? Because you do. You don't have to wonder how you're doing this week. You don't have to wonder, am I good enough? Is God going to accept me? Does God love me today? Oh, I blew it yesterday. I have to wait till next week before God will answer my prayer again. So many Christians live that way. They're insecure around God. They don't know if God's going to answer their prayer or hear their prayer. Or know if they're right enough for God to, God to listen to them. The only question you really have to ask yourself is, does God love Jesus? Because if God loves Jesus, you're automatically loved. Because God treats you the way he treats Jesus because he treated Jesus the way you should have been treated. The only thing you need to ask is, does God accept Jesus Christ? If God accepts his son Jesus, you are automatically accepted. Because everything Jesus earned on the cross is now put around your neck. It's yours. See, you've got to get that if you're going to understand the secret of John. I love the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 3. If we could jump to Ephesians 3 on the scripture. Paul says, then Christ will make his home in your hearts. As you trust in him, your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. Verse 18. And may you have the power to understand. This is my prayer for you this morning. This, this is the secret of John right here. This is my one desire for you today. May you have the power to understand. That you will get this revelation. Not in your mind. But this will sink down into your heart. This, this will dig down into your heart. Into the deep, deep places of your heart. You will have the power to understand. As all God's people should. How wide. How long, how high, and how deep his love is. See, it's not about how much you love him. It's about how much he loves you. That'll change your life. Verse 19. May you experience the love of Christ. Though it is too great to understand fully. Listen, I get that this is hard to comprehend. I pray every single morning that God would give me a revelation of his love. How much he loves me. That is too great to fully understand. Then. Then. You will be made complete. Isn't that one of the goals of life? To be complete? To not be broken. To not be struggling. To just be complete as a human being. Then you will be complete. That's not all. You, You will be complete with all the fullness of life. And the power that comes from God. 
think about this. When you really understand how much God loves you, see, this, this is what John got. See, Peter's whole life was how much he loved Jesus. John's life was how much Jesus loved him. Look at the benefits of really understanding how much God loves you. When you really get a revelation, and the reason God can love you is because he punished Jesus. You are perfect in God's sight. You say, but I sinned this morning. It's covered in the blood. God can't see your sin because you are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. If you are a born-again believer and follow Jesus Christ, you are washed in that blood. When God looks at you, you are perfect. He looks at you as if you were Christ. That's why He can love you. And if He loves you, these are the three benefits. You will be complete. You will have fullness of life and power that comes from God. Can you think of anything greater to have than to be complete, to have fullness of life and power? And I love the heart of Jesus. Even though Peter betrayed, even though Peter failed, Jesus gave him a second chance. In John 21, they're on the shore after the resurrection. Jesus is cooking breakfast. The disciples are out fishing. Peter sees him. He jumps in the water. Look at this with me. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, I want you to understand, in the Greek, this is, the, the, the Greek has four different words for love. There's the, the, the Greek word agape, which is God's perfect love. The Greek word phileo, which is man's love. The Greek word eros, which is sexual love. And then there's, a, there's, a, there's another love for just, like, feelings of a, attraction to something. Jesus is using the word agape here. Jesus is saying, Peter, do you have agape love? What Jesus is really asking because remember in 1 John it says we love because he first loved us. If you don't receive agape love, you can't give agape love. What Jesus is asking Peter here is, Peter, have you received my agape love yet so that you can love me back? He says, Peter, do you have agape love? And then Peter replies to him, Lord, I have phileo love for you. See, Peter's using a different word than Jesus is using. I know in the English Bible, it just uses the word love. Peter's using a different word. Jesus saying, Peter, do you have God's love for me? And Peter says, Jesus, you know I have phileo. I've got humanly love for you. Jesus asked a second time, Peter, do you have agape love for me? Peter says, Jesus, you know I have phileo love for you. Third time, Peter. And this is when Jesus switches it up. He says, do you even have phileo love for me? Humanly love? And that's when Peter gets frustrated. He says, Jesus, you know all things. You know I have humanly love for you. And I love the heart where he continually gives him a second chance. And my favorite verse in the Bible is Mark 16, verse 7. Because this is so true about my life. The angels at the tomb. Jesus is risen from the dead. The women are there. And this is what the angel says. Go tell my disciples, and Peter. Why did, why, why did the angel say, and Peter? Because at this time, Peter didn't feel like a disciple anymore. He didn't feel like he was good enough. He blew it. He failed. He betrayed Christ in his darkest moments. And yet, God wanted Peter to know, I haven't given up on you yet. You may have committed the worst betrayal to the Son of God and all of mankind, but you're still a disciple. You're not forsaken. 
I have not abandoned you. And I don't know how many times I've betrayed God and needed his grace to come down and give me that second chance. I saw this video and it really illustrated this message and I just wanted to share this with you today. Would you go ahead and run that video for me? Grace is God's unmerited favor for us, his crazy love. And the truth is, many times we struggle understanding it. If you find yourself struggling to understand God's grace, don't beat yourself up. Even the disciples struggled with understanding grace. Jesus, is that you? You're alive. I can't believe you're alive. Okay, I was in the boat and I wasn't catching any fish, okay? But I heard this voice and the voice said, cast your net to the other side. And so I'm thinking, no, I'm a fisherman. I know what I'm doing, but I'm not catching any fish, you know? And so I throw that net over there and then a gaggle of fish pop into that net and I'm going, this is a total miracle. Who could have done that? I need to know who told me to throw the net to the other side. And boom, I look up and I mean, there is you. You're looking at me on the seashore going, it is I, the Lord, and you're alive. I can't believe you're alive. <laughs> this is awesome. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on. Peter. It's yeah. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. I love you. You're alive. This is so great. Good. And then feed my 